Hi, listeners. Cheryl here. The new season of Dear Sugars is coming next week. In the meantime, here's one of our favorite old episodes. Last Scene, a new podcast from WBUR and the Boston Globe, investigates the largest unsolved art heist in history. So about the time that he begins putting the duct tape on, he says, this is a robbery. The theft of half a billion dollars worth of art from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. When the FBI says, we solved it, we know who did it, it's like, no, you don't, because you don't have the paintings. Subscribe and listen to Last Scene Now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Sponsored by Samuel Adams and ADT Smart Home. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Oh, dear son, won't you please Share some little sweet days with me Hi, Steve. Hello, Cheryl. We're going to do another one of those rapid-fire episodes. Yes! Where we answer a whole bunch of questions. Yeah, we need that sound effect. We're getting it. So, but here's the, here's the conceit. We don't always stick to it, but we answer more letters than usual. Instead of the one, two, or three that we do on regular episodes, we try to do more like four, five, six, seven. And we try to be as concise in our answers as possible. And we each try to just take one crack at it. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, we have to have a little back and forth, but... That's what we do. So here we go. I'm going to read the first letter. Let's do it. Dear Sugars, my sister has been married for almost 30 years to a man who has become very wealthy. As their wealth has increased, they have bought real estate that sits empty 80% of the time. They now own five such properties. I live with my husband and son in a two-small house, which we struggle to pay the mortgage on. My husband works very hard and makes a decent salary. I stayed home to raise our son and am now working part-time. I cannot find a full-time job. My sister and brother-in-law have given us old sofas, used cars, and a bit of cash at Christmas for the last few years. They have a lot of money. My brother-in-law has a net worth of around $30 million. Their wealth is causing me so much anxiety. They have been generous with my mother. They believe they have been generous with us. But they have the ability to ease so much stress for us. I know I sound like an entitled brat. I don't want to be this person. I've struggled with this with my very wonderful therapist for a long time now. She seems to be advocating for me to walk away from my family, to get myself out of the way of the pain and disappointment I feel. I want them to give us money. I want them to help us buy a new house or pay off our current mortgage. It would mean nothing to them financially to help us do this. I cannot go on living like this. I hate being this person. My relationship with my sister has always been strained. I feel like I may need to cut them out of my life so I can go on living mine. Help me put this in perspective. Thanks. Signed, Entitled and or Justified. Wow. Look, um, it's never the money. It's what the money represents. And what this letter to me expresses is that this woman 
that you entitled and or justified have the wish that your relationship with your sister were stronger and that she would give to you um, ease of mind, that she would intuitively be generous towards you. But you can't demand generosity. You have to be generous to me because I'm in this state of stress and it's your responsibility. You have the means to relieve that and therefore you should. And of course, it's terribly humiliating to experience that as a kind of demand because it feels, as you're identifying, childlike and entitled. But I wonder, Cheryl, if this sister, rather than showing love and support through money, were deeply concerned and connected to our letter writer, you know, and empathetic with the struggle that they have to keep themselves in the middle class and pay the bills and pay the mortgage. I wonder how much that would diffuse that expectation that she would solve the problem with money. Because if your sister tries to solve this with money, it creates a whole new set of problems. There's always power associated with that. You know, you might think that you're resolved about that, but I don't think you are. And your husband certainly is going to feel a certain level of, um, you know, humiliation or a loss of power and his own sense of volition. Uh, it's an extraordinarily complex question. Mon- this money stuff, the money feels like the problem, and it really stands in the way of, I, I believe, the real human problem here, which is two sisters who-, who can't be generous with one another. Right. Her struggle isn't, I want my sister to buy me a house, and she should because she's rich. I think her struggle is that she feels deeply jealous of her sister's financial fortune. Right. And you know, to the extent that she's actually threatening to leave this relationship, to cut off ties with her sister and her family, unless her sister buys her a house. Well, I'll tell you this. I wouldn't buy a house for somebody who held that gun to my head. Right. And I I was really struck by this piece of the letter where Entitled and or Justified says, they have been generous with my mother. They believe they have been generous with us. And I believe they've been generous with her, too. It's no small thing to give somebody your used car. And I'm going to guess somebody who is worth $30 million, their used car is probably, you know, a couple of years and old, right? And it's plural, right? used cars. And used cars and cash at Christmas and old furniture and so forth. And I think that one of the, the most fascinating dynamics for me at play here is I put myself in both of their shoes. And there is this, you know, this vibe you get with friends who are stingy. So, like, you're out for lunch over the course of your whatever, 20-year friendship, and, and you find that over and over again, you're the one picking up the bill. Mm-hmm. And, and, and regardless of who has how much money, that's something that you notice over time. And yeah. what I find is what it brings out in me is then I want to be less generous with yeah. that friend. Right. Okay? Or somebody, for example, who t- sort of takes that generosity for granted. So I feel like entitled and or justified, the fact that you don't believe that your sister has been generous actually contributes to her inability That's right. to be more generous with you as right. you think she should be. Right. So I think to think about jealousy, gratitude, I don't think that you need to you know, get down on your knees and kiss the, the ground thanking your sister for this used car, but you have benefited from her wealth. She's taking care of your mother in ways that you deem generous, which to me probably sounds like a house or, you know, that she's set and that's a burden that's not on your shoulders exactly. anymore. Yeah. And so maybe shifting your perspective about the way you think your sister has behaved towards you on this money front will also allow you to kind of ease up on 
this idea you have that she should buy you a house or pay off your mortgage, which I just want to say, nobody has to buy anybody a house. And it doesn't matter to you whether you think this would have a great financial impact on them or not. I think that that's for your sister and her husband to decide. But I will say, if you go to her with that kind of more open-hearted feeling, what it does is it opens a passageway for her to be more generous. So why not, instead of expecting them to buy you a house or help you pay off your mortgage, why don't you go to your sister and you say, our house is too small. We need a bigger house. Could we get a loan from you for that house? And then it can either be a loan or your sister can say, you know what? This would be nothing to us to just buy it for you. Let us do that. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then it, it, nobody's humiliated. Nobody's obligated. And I don't mean that in a manipulative way. I mean, if you start that conversation, it really does need to be that if your sister says, yeah, it is a loan, that you treat it as such and you respect the terms of that loan. But I guess it just it allows you to have a conversation that's on equal footing that's not about you feeling entitled to something that honestly... I don't think you're entitled to. Yeah. All right. Let's hit the next letter. Onward and inward. Here we go. Dear Sugar Steve and Sugar Cheryl, this is so stupid. I pulled basically the most cliche psycho girlfriend move ever. I read my boyfriend's text this morning. He had already left for work and his laptop was just sitting there. I'm nosy and weak-willed, sure. But I think I also had a feeling about what I would find, which was some text to a couple of strangers from OK Cupid. We've been dating for over three months, and we agreed pretty early on that we didn't want to sleep with other people. I knew he was still checking his OK Cupid, though, which was fine with me. It's sort of a hobby, like Candy Crush. But I didn't know he was taking these chats to the phone, and the most recent exchange happened only a few days ago while I was out of town. That was a little surprising. What I did this morning was super uncool. Let me admit that. I know it's an invasion of privacy and a betrayal of trust. I know it's not a good way to find out things I want to know about his life. I know I should be straightforward and ask questions. But I have done that to a degree. I've told him I deleted my OkCupid and Tinder. I've communicated my feelings and asked him to do the same. I want to see where we stand as two people who are having some pretty great sex and also enjoy each other even when we're not naked. And he has, for the most part, given me answers that made me feel secure, like we're on the same page. But obviously part of me was unsatisfied with his answers or didn't trust him to be forthcoming. Okay, here's the pettiest thing. The specifics of the text didn't particularly bother me. There were no requests to meet up, no dirty pics, except this. He sent one of the girls a photo of us on Halloween, we were dressed up as cats, to show her what his costume looked like. I'm really blurry in the photo. I'm jumping around because he was being a frisky kitty and grabbing at me. And he said to this girl, if it helps, the person I was molesting was a dude. I am not a dude. I'm a girl who stays at his place four times a week, whose lovely, sweet parents he is going to meet in just a few weeks. That just kind of hurts my feelings and makes me want to cry a little bit at work right now and listen to Silver Dagger on repeat. I feel disrespected. I feel like my ego, or maybe something a little more tender than my ego, is bruised. Even now, several hours later, I can't eat, and I feel like I'm going to throw up. Maybe it's obvious, but I like him. But why does he have to disappoint me like that? Should I consider this an inevitable symptom of online dating, of having thousands of hot strangers literally at our fingertips? What do I do with the tangle of emotions I'm feeling? And why are he and I both such cliches? 
I understand if this is too trivial for you to even dignify with an answer. I know there are people in the world with real problems, but I'm not really sure how to address this little one. I've put myself in a weird position because of my snooping. For a smart girl, I'm kind of an idiot. Love, nosy kitty. Oh, nosy kitty. Yeah. You poor, poor thing. I, I think that what you do to deal with this tangle of emotions you're feeling, I think that you have to own up to what you did and what you found. Your ego is not just bruised. Your, your, your heart is hurting. That's why you say something more tender than my ego is bruised. It's that this guy really disappointed you and you really like him. And you know you did the wrong thing by snooping into his phone. That is almost always a bad idea. First off, because it's just disrespectful. You're violating your partner's privacy. What it also leads to when you do violate somebody else's privacy is that you have to then confront the information you come upon. Right. And I think that it's such a disappointment and such a profound letdown to see that, you know, that this guy indeed has not been good to his word. He's given you the impression that he's just interested in you right now. That You know, it doesn't sound like you guys have this huge commitment, but certainly that you are only seeing each other. And what you found is really in violation of that. And so you need to talk to him about it. And part of it is going to be an apology. I would say the first part of it is going to be an apology. You know that you don't want this kind of behavior in your relationship, whether it be a relationship you have with him or partners in the future. You don't want to be a cop. You don't want to be investigating your partner. You don't want to be snooping into their private messages and their journals and whatnot. It just leads to an ugly vibe between the two of you. But you also don't want to be lied to. You don't want to be deceived. Right. And so I think you should tell him you're sorry you snooped, but also tell him that you expect an explanation of what you found. And I really encourage you to think about what you want from this relationship. And if it isn't a guy who's deceiving you and messing around with other people, then the two of you really need to talk about what's next. He might not be ready for the kind of commitment with you that you seem to be hoping that the two of you will enter into. Right. This conversation will be very illuminating. Yeah. I wish you luck. Yeah. Uh, you know, Cheryl, I think it's it just right. And I'm less interested in what you found. I'm more interested in why you did it. And you did it because you don't trust him. And part of the reason that you don't trust him is that you don't have clear terms to the relationship. Um, I knew he was still checking his okay Cupid. It's fine with me. It's sort of a hobby like Candy Crush. No, it isn't. You are consenting in that moment to a delusion which is that if you give a young guy access to a dating site and he takes it up, it's nothing more than just playing a video game. And that's actually not what it is. And I think you know that's not what it is. You know, it is not inevitable because we have the tools now to browse through hundreds of potential, thousands, millions of potential relationships. That doesn't mean when you're in a committed relationship that you're allowed to do that because that technology exists. And I think one thing you need to do without even getting into the particulars, I don't even know if I get into the particulars of what you found, frankly. I would just say I didn't entirely trust. I didn't know where I stood with you. And I feel like maybe we haven't been clear enough about how we see the relationship. And maybe I haven't been clear enough. And in a certain way, you brought a certain amount of that onto yourself by allowing the terms of the relationship to be a little fuzzy. It's very easy for people to say, well, I was just looking. 
And I don't think that's what you're looking for. I think you're looking for, for right now with this guy, exclusivity, that any time and attention that he has is being spent developing a relationship with you and seeing if it's going to become a commitment. You are staying at his place four nights a week, and he is going to meet your parents. Mm -hmm. That's no small thing. And it's a dark turn of events, but it's also the exact opportunity that you need to clarify whether this is going to be a relationship that's going to be according to the terms you want. Mm -hmm. I think in a case like this, too, what you offer, Nosy Kitty, when you have that honest conversation with your boyfriend— is that you both get to have information about the other one, and it's right there between you. He gets to know that you don't trust him and that you violated his privacy, that your trust was your lack of trust was that great that you crossed that boundary that you have and you violated his privacy. What you get to know is he really isn't ready to commit yet. He hasn't let go of those websites. And he's also willing to lie to other women about the nature of your relationship. He told another woman that you are a dude in that photograph. And there's a reason he told her that. And the reason is that he doesn't want her to know you exist. So there's the information. And I think letting that out into the open between you can be nothing but enlightening. Right. Next letter. Dear Sugars, I'm in love with a woman I last dated a decade ago. I should explain. I'm a woman in my 30s, and I've never quite been able to get over my first serious girlfriend. We live across the country from each other now, haven't seen each other for years. We dated for a little more than a year, and it was hot and heavy, and we spent a lot of time fantasizing, as early 20-somethings do, about what our lives might look like in the future, the home we'd build together, the children we'd raise. We ended up splitting up when we went in different directions— She pursued graduate school several states away. We both moved on, or so I thought. But even through the relationships I've had since, I can't shake her. I'm seriously dating someone now. My partner and I have lived together for four years and have been together for longer than that. We're not married, no kids. But as she keeps dropping hints about when we might marry or have kids, I can't stop thinking about that ex of mine and the life we joked we might have one day. After a few years of no contact, I recently reconnected on the phone with that ex. She contacted me, ironically, and ended up telling her, accidentally, that I was still in love with her. And she said she still loves me, even through all the women she's dated, too. It felt like kismet. But here's the reality. I'm in a serious long-term relationship with someone else. She's dating someone else, too. We live thousands of miles apart. What am I supposed to do, sugars? Break it off with my current partner, quit my job, move thousands of miles across the country to see if this works again? And what if it doesn't? Our first relationship wasn't all coming up roses. It had rocky moments, too. But I can't imagine spending the rest of my life with anyone else. I've tried everything I can think of to get over her. Distance, both physical and emotional, other people, you name it. My heart is stuck. Signed, Always Looking Back. This is kind of tough love, always looking back, but I want you to think about what it would feel like for you to say to the woman you've been living with for four years who believes that you are going to um, get married and, and have kids, I can't imagine spending the rest of my life with anyone but another woman. 
I just think fundamentally this is one of these cases where you are retreating in a kind of panic from the possibility of making a life with somebody into a fantasy of another life, another relationship. And there's no saying necessarily that your instincts might not be right here. Maybe you're both meant to break up with the people you're with and take up together and live out uh, the relationship that never worked quite right the first time, but neither of you can shake. That happens. That's possible. But what really is fundamentally happening is that you have a seriously committed girlfriend who believes that you are going to get married and have kids together. And you don't want that, it sounds like. Or at any rate, right now, your feeling is that you can't imagine being with anyone other than someone else. And that is deeply deceptive and hurtful towards the person who you really are committed to here and who has a right to an honest accounting of the contents of your heart. I don't know what happens down the road, but the first thing that you have to do is tell your current partner how you feel. And if that leads to you breaking things off with her, okay, maybe that's where it's going to go. But I'm very leery of the fact that this desire to enter into this decade-old relationship right at the moment that you're feeling pressure to settle down with your current girlfriend, that's not a coincidence. The fact that this connection was reestablished, you didn't accidentally say, I love you, I still love you. You were, understandably, without blame, but you were looking for a way out. Mm, Yeah. I agree. I think that the heart of the problem is that you're not happy always looking back. You feel like you're missing something that you had with this ex-girlfriend. And that might be true. And it might be nostalgia. Right. And we can't guess on that. I mean, it's also true that you could get together with her and, and actually be very happy. You know, you're asking us, should I essentially do this crazy thing and shut down my life here and go and pursue this ex? But the question that sits beneath that is... Why are you unhappy in your life right now? Why are you unhappy in your relationship right now? And the sooner you make a shine a light on that and make decisions about that, the sooner you can actually then really address what it is that's missing and how you can get it. It may or may not be through this ex-girlfriend. This ex-girlfriend may or may not be actually interested in dating you again. I mean, to say to some an old lover, yes, I love you too, is a very different thing than saying, yes, I'm going to leave my current relationship and date you again. Right. Okay. So, so you know, I think that the question isn't like, oh, investigate whether this ex is still interested, but investigate why you are unhappy. And you are unhappy. And it is hard to end a relationship of four years with a woman you care for and love. But maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe the beginning of this journey in which you actually find real happiness and love that makes you feel content and settled is to be alone, to step out of a relationship that isn't fulfilling you and see what comes after that. Support for Dear Sugars comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com sugars today to get 10% off your first month. 
The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Hi, Sugars. My problem seems so trivial compared to the other topics you've discussed that I'm almost ashamed to be writing about it. For the last year, I've been laboring under the weight of an intense crush for lack of a better word, on a happily married colleague with whom I have no chance of ever pursuing a relationship. I won't waste words justifying my feelings. I'll just say I'm a woman who has had fleeting crushes in the past, but this feels different and deeper and therefore more frustrating. The line that I've been feeding myself is that caring about someone is a reward in and of itself and that the love of friendship is just as valuable and fulfilling as romantic love, But even though I do believe this intellectually, there's still an ache inside of feeling like it isn't enough. To put it melodramatically, I feel like if we met in another lifetime, in different circumstances, there could have been something between us. And this weird sense of having somehow missed an opportunity feels like a weight on my chest. I haven't felt like this about anyone before, even people I've ended up dating. And so to feel this way about someone that will always be out of reach just feels kind of pointless. I'm not asking for advice on what to do or how to behave. I'm not an outwardly emotional person, so it's not hard for me to maintain professionalism around her. My plan is to just keep calm and hope that I eventually reach the end of my emotional attention span, allowing this crush to fizzle out. I don't want to be given false hope, but I also don't need to be told that this isn't going anywhere. I think the reason that I'm writing to you, Sugars, is that I honestly don't know what I want to hear. All I know is that I've had all the stock advice on this situation that I can take, and I feel the need for a new perspective, hopefully one that will either shake me out of this emotional loop or help me gracefully accept the situation for what it's worth. Thank you. Emotionally exhausted. This is a hard one. Yeah. Mainly because emotionally exhausted, you have not given us much opportunity to give you advice. Because what you say is, Listen, I'm going to stay calm. I'm going to hope that this will fizzle out. I don't want you to give me false hope. I don't want you to tell me it isn't going anywhere. So what do we say to you? What I can offer you, I guess, are words of consolation. You know, I'm sorry that you have fallen in love with someone who is unavailable to you. And I guess if you're looking for you know, whenever I'm in a situation where I feel stuck or exhausted or sort of like I know what I need to do and I'll just do it, I guess where the energy comes from for me is like looking at that situation and asking myself, is this part of a pattern? Why do I feel so strongly this way? I'm really fascinated by this strong language you use when you describe your feelings for this woman. You say, if we met in another lifetime, there could have been something between us. You, you feel like that you have missed this opportunity. And you even say, I haven't felt like this even about people I've dated. So you have this incredibly intimate feeling with someone you're not intimate with. Yeah. You say you want to get out the emotional loop, maybe uh, allowing yourself to kind of step back from the very kind of daily feelings of desire or that crush you have on this woman and think about 
you know, where those intense feelings come from, what piece of your life does this woman seem to fill? What hole in your psyche does this woman fill? And think about what this means to you as a person, what this means to you in terms of looking for that next partner you're going to have, and how you can find somebody who makes you feel the way this woman feels. Yeah. You're right, Cheryl. I felt a little hamstrung here. I'm not asking for us and what to do or how to behave. Don't tell me this is impossible, even though I just told you the situation is impossible. I guess what I would offer you emotionally exhausted rather than advice on what to do or how to behave is to ask yourself a few questions. And at the top of the list would be, why am I pursuing somebody who is not available to me? Mm-hmm. People, we heard this actually, and we hear this actually in many of the letters. We just heard it in the last letter uh, from Always Looking Back. We oftentimes choose uh, a relationship that is impossible because possible relationships are messy and they put us at risk. They make us vulnerable. And especially if you're not an outwardly emotional person, that's a real source of danger. So we choose a relationship that is doomed to never happen. Or we choose a relationship that is more fantasy than reality. Sometimes we're in retreat from a relationship in the case of always looking back. In this case, emotionally exhausted, you're in retreat from the possibility of finding somebody who will love you back. And that is not a fantasy of meeting in another lifetime, but actually meeting in this lifetime. And People in all moments, all throughout life, people put themselves in situations where for whatever complex set of reasons, they're not ready to make themselves vulnerable in that way. You know, Nosy Kitty's boyfriend, in his own way, is trying to back off from the possibility of that kind of emotional vulnerability. And maybe to some extent, Nosy Kitty herself doesn't want to make herself vulnerable by making the terms of the relationship explicit and moving deeper into it. It's a spectrum. But this is a rather radical extreme or, you know, you're at the radical end where for the moment, in this moment in your life, you're foreclosing the possibility of becoming deeply emotionally involved with somebody who will love you back. It's frightening when people love you back because you become dependent on it and then they can withdraw that love. I would ask yourself the question of why am I investing my time and energy and my heart in a relationship that's impossible without the expectation that suddenly you're going to feel differently. A lot of times people in whatever phase of their life just do not want the possibility, the mess that the heart makes when we fall in love. Right. All right, here we go. Next letter. Dear Sugars, my boyfriend and I have been together for five and a half years and he has yet to propose marriage. We are in a loving relationship. He's my best friend. We lived together for two of those years and we've been on vacation with each other's families. Our parents like each other so much that they even hang out when we're not in town. I'm 30, and he's 32. When I bring up marriage and children, he tells me he wants the same things I want. He says, I'm the one, and has made comments about what our wedding would be like, but I haven't seen any signs that he might be saving for a ring or planning a proposal. This year, as our five-year anniversary approached, I made it clear that I wanted to get married soon and that I would not wait around much longer. It wasn't an ultimatum exactly, but I hoped that being especially direct about my feelings would motivate him. I haven't been able to stop myself from hinting about it all year long. At Christmas, I intuitively knew that he didn't have anything planned. Even worse, he didn't accept my invitation to spend Christmas with my family and didn't offer to include me in his family's holiday. When his holiday gift to me was a scarf and some inexpensive earrings, I burst into tears. I told him that I was so tired of hoping and being disappointed. He was genuinely sorry that he had disappointed me. 
He said the idea of proposing and getting married makes him nervous. And he asked if my family liked him. The answer is yes, they do. I know he feels financial pressure, as this year he also bought a small business and is struggling to get it off the ground. I think he's worried about establishing himself in a career before proposing. But at this point in our relationship, if he can't even make a mutual sacrifice to split holidays, should I want to marry him? My mother thinks I should only give him until Valentine's Day. I hate how weirdly traditional and frustrated I've become about this, and I don't want to force his proposal with an ultimatum. Leaving him would break my heart. Sugars, what should I do? Sincerely, patient. It is so interesting, Cheryl, when a man wants to get married, it's called a proposal. And when a woman wants to get married, it's called an ultimatum. Right. Patient. You are not to be blamed for having this fairy tale idea about this proposal and what this proposal should look like. But I think that you need to let it go. Honestly, it's a ridiculous way to begin such an important relationship and to make such an important decision as to get married, to wed yourself to somebody perhaps forever. A proposal is an event. It's a romantic drama. But what the two of you need to do is decide, make a decision, a considered, well-thought-out, much-discussed decision whether you want to commit to each other on the level of a marriage. And I think that, you know, your boyfriend actually told you he's nervous about that. And so the response to that shouldn't be, well, okay, well, I want you to start saving for a ring and and propose to me, okay, because that's going to fix everything. The response to that should be, let's talk about that. Let's explore that because I want to be committed to you. And what you're telling me is you're nervous about committing to me. Now, his nervousness doesn't mean that he doesn't want to commit to you, but it does mean you need to find out what it means. You need to find out, is this something that he needs to explore in himself and in conversation with you, figure out how to address this in the course of your relationship? Or does it mean that his nervousness is really about actually not wanting to get married? I can tell you from my experience, I know this is going to crush the hearts of all of those out there in Sugarland because we know Mr. Sugar is such a beloved, beloved soul. No, don't such do a it. dear, dear husband. Don't do it. But I have to say, we had been together about three and a half years when we got engaged. And uh, we had really gone through a lot in those three and a half years. And we really knew we loved each other. Mm -hmm. And we both knew that we wanted to get married to each other. And so I went through the same thing, patient, that you went through. It was my birthday. And then it was the anniversary of the day we met. And then it was Christmas. And I did not receive a diamond ring and a handsome man down on one knee. And I was crushed. And I talked to Brian and I was like, what the hell is your problem? Like, we keep talking about how we want to get married. And I hated it too. I Like, we we have this liberated equal relationship. This isn't about Brian asking me. It was about us making a decision. And he was afraid of exactly what your boyfriend is afraid of, patient. He didn't, he didn't know how to perform this act of, of wedded monogamy. Mm-hmm. And so what ended up happening is we talked about it. And like two adults who love each other and who are on equal footing, we decided to get married. And over the course of those conversations, he gave me a diamond ring, but not with a grand proposal. And I was sad about that because I wanted the fairy tale proposal. But in the end, what I'm glad I had was a deep conversation with somebody who did have anxiety, not about his love for me, but about his ability to commit to one woman. And he was being honest with me because he actually did have some struggles he needed to overcome in order to do that. 
And it made us stronger and better. So what I hope you'll do, patient, is not give your boyfriend an ultimatum, not expect a proposal by Valentine's Day, but to sit him down this very day and say, we really need to talk about our relationship and our commitment. Mm -hmm. Good luck, patient. One more question. One more. It's a brief one. Mm. Dear Sugars, do people ever really change? Sincerely, Sisyphus. Sisyphus. Uh, You know, yes, I believe it. I think people, actually, I think people change all the time. And, you know, our hope in life is predicated on the idea that we're able to change and that the good parts about us will stay solid and secure and in place and that the parts of us that are flawed and broken and wounded will find a way slowly, incrementally, with a lot of honest, you know, confession to ourselves and others to heal up and make progress. I deeply believe that. I think it's like the most hopeful thing in the world to say, yeah, I believe this person is capable of changing. And I think conversely, it is really a cynical trap to say, you know what? People always just stay the same. It's a kind of surrender. And it's ultimately really dark and deterministic. It means that redemption is not possible. And actually, if you view religion as reality and literal, or even if you view it as like a beautiful myth, it's predicated on the idea that people actually can find salvation and redemption. Mm-hmm. I think people change all the time. Right. But to Sisyphus's point, yes. I will say too, that I think that what you're talking about, especially that with that signature, what you're talking about is nature, okay? So we can change in all kinds of more superficial ways, and right. we do all the time, right? right? I'm certainly different than I was 20 years ago and 40 years ago and so forth, right? As is true of probably everyone listening to us. However, I think what maybe the question you're asking is, will we always struggle with those same essential struggles? You know, if you're somebody who is born with anxiety or a hot temper or uh, inclination to be overly people-pleasing or, you know, fill in the blank, any number of things. Mm -hmm. I do think that those things are essentially our life challenges. They're they're almost like our destinies. And one one thing I've learned in my own life is pretty much every one of my virtues has a vice, that old, you know, phrase. And I think that everything that I could say is sort of innately good about me in my nature has also proven to be a struggle that I have to face. And the the reverse is true, too. The things Mm -hmm. that are innately negative about me, I've had to find ways to channel those negative attributes into something positive in order to succeed as a person. Right. You know? Yeah. So if you're impatient, you need to learn some patience. If you're quick to anger, you need to learn how to take a few breaths. Right. And this is often something that we struggle with all of our lives, that it's not something you can just wave a wand and make it disappear, sadly. I think the hang-up sometimes is with the word change because it implies to people something characterological, what you're talking about. Maybe it's easier to think of it as human beings as a species have survived and thrived because we are the most adaptable species. That Mm -hmm. is the thing we have. And I honestly believe that, and sort of the predicate of our show is the idea that people can adapt And likewise, that people, and I think about so many of our letter writers, like they're doing this amazing, beautiful thing of being able to face the truth of themselves on the page and really tell their story. And yet so many of the letters are filled with a sense of failure and loathing and suffering and being static and stuck. And I'm sitting there going, no, you're doing the one thing that matters the most, the thing that that change is predicated on, which is facing the truth of yourself. 
Indeed. So good luck doing that, listeners. This has been another episode of Dear Sugar Radio. We're produced Rapid fire. by WBR in Boston. Our producer and editor is the fabulous Lisa Tobin. We're recording at Talk Back Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon. Our sound engineer is Josh Millman. Please listen and subscribe to us on iTunes. Please send your letters to us to dearsugarradio at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Absolutely.